Welcome back to the program. Doug Miles and Don Henderson with you tonight. We're going to talk some uh, vintage football right now, talking about uh, 1970, a very seminal year in the NFL. And a man who's written a book about it. It's called NFL 1970, the inaugural season of the new NFL. We're going to be uh, talking with Ian Kahanowitz. He has uh, written uh, not only this book, but other books on uh, sports as well, including uh, uh, baseball. And uh, we're going to uh, join him right now, Don, as he is up in uh, North Attleboro, Massachusetts. And and uh, Ian uh, Kahanowitz, very good to have you join us tonight. Thanks for being with us. Well, it's a pleasure to be here, gentlemen. Always looking forward to talk about, you know, vintage sports. And uh, I'm honored to be on the show. Well, I'll tell you, you were in a very controversial area with this book because uh, nobody believed that uh, the National Football League would be challenged and uh, actually competed with and lose. Yeah, yeah, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's some of the stuff I write is controversial, but uh, we'll get into it. Let me give you uh, some questions. I'll be happy, more than happy to answer it. I just want to mention you quickly, I was just going to say quickly before we get into the book, uh, uh, before we went on, we were chatting a little bit, but Ian from originally Brooklyn, as uh, I was born there, I didn't grow up there, grew up in Long Island, and of course Don's family uh, originally from Brooklyn as well, so uh, you and I, uh, all three of us really saw growing up uh, up in the New York area, uh, the, the great NFL teams. I go back, I guess, uh, to about just about when you wrote the you know the the uh, era of the book, 1970. It's when I first started to watch uh, the NFL. The first Super Bowl I remember was Super Bowl Four, which uh, uh, took place in that year. So it really was a huge change in the sport. You know, it was. It uh, it's funny because Super Bowl Four. In fact, the book just came about uh, on the '69 Kansas City Chiefs. Super Bowl Four was the last Super Bowl that featured two different leagues. You had the American Football League, you had the National Football League, and these two leagues were battling each other all throughout the 60s for supremacy. Now, you had a superior Minnesota Vikings team against a less, uh, you know, talented Kansas City Chiefs team. And the NFL wanted to get revenge on the AFL because the Jets, had beat the Colts in Super Bowl three. Uh, you know, it, it, these these games were for bragging rights. The AFL was the up and coming league. The NFL had been the more established league since 1919, and the Jets win over the Colts. And if you were around back then, it, it was like monumental. Probably, I can honestly say this: the greatest upset ever in Super Bowl history. Now, Super Bowl four, you have probably one of the best Viking teams um, that went into the Super Bowl and were crushed by a stifling Kansas City uh, defense in 1970. But that marked the last of the old Super Bowl where the storyline was great. You know, 
now both leagues have two victories. Green Bay won the first two Super Bowls. The AFC won with the Jets and the Chiefs. And this segues into the merger now where there will not be an AFL. They'll become the American Football Conference League. And the NFL will become the National uh, Football Conference, which we know today. Well, you're exactly right about the first couple of games. And, uh, you know, when Green Bay played in the very first game, it was no contest at all, honestly. Uh, they tried very hard to, uh, to pump it up. They played in Los Angeles. And everybody, uh, you know, was waiting this great expectation of this football game. And it just didn't happen. Green Bay was just a little too good to start the league. And you know something about Green Bay? The pressure was on Vince Lombardi for Super Bowl One. Okay, it's written in many books, and you have to go digging for it, but he always put the American Football League down. Um, he <laughs> believed in the product that he was selling. Um, he had created a powerful Green Bay team uh, that I think won five championships in the 1960s, and he created a style of play that eclipsed everything that coaches had done before. The only coach who has pretty much been able to almost beat Green Bay was Tom Landry and the Dallas Cowboys, only because he made tweaks on the defense because, again, he worked with Lombardi uh, when they were on the Giants together, and Lombardi um, had a style of play that no one in the NFL uh, can be, could have beaten him. And he called the AFL uh, Mickey Mouse League. In fact, the Kansas City Chiefs uh, set up their camp near Disney. Uh, I don't know if it's World or Land. I forget out in California. But they were all wearing the Mickey Mouse ears uh, in practices <laughs> and, and stuff. Just, just to lighten the look. The pressure was on Lombardi severely. And he tried to shield the players from the pressure that you must win. You are representing the national football league against this Mickey Mouse league, these Kansas City Chiefs. And um, yeah, it, was, it wasn't much of a contest. 1970 again, and not only, uh, like you said, the merger of the two leagues, but also some uh, uh, rule changes. Uh, they added a wild card uh, playoff, uh, Monday Night Football starting in 1970, which uh, totally revolutionized not only the night football was broadcast, but just the, the way it was broadcast. That night, three announcers, of course, Howard Cosell uh, was the, the unusual uh, third man in the booth there, and uh, that really, uh, I think, added even more to uh, what the game you were watching. It was more of an entertainment then, right? The Monday night football was something that the NFL experimented with um, years before, like in the 50s and 60s, but it was Pete Rozelle who saw that Maybe football can be ran on another time uh, during the week so that um, at prime time to make it pretty much the first prime time uh, sport uh, in the United States. And he, he tinkered and toyed with the idea saying, wouldn't it be great that we have, we have college on Saturday, we got pro on Sunday and another day. I would have pro football people to come home from work. It's Monday night, um, you know, and you're still recuperating from the day before, and you want more football, and here it is. The only difference was the people today who see football, it's 24-7 on cable TV. 
It wasn't like that in 1970. You didn't have these pregame shows and all this. I mean, it started at, I know being in New York, it started at, say, 12 with the NFL today and it ended at 7. You know, usually the Giants and Jets mixed up their schedules and then that was it. But Monday Night Football did something that no one ever did. What they did was they took the films that were transported during the week to a weekly show, I think the NFL uh, weekly. Yeah, this, this week in the NFL. Was, yeah. yeah, this week in the NFL. And so what they did was they had all that stuff transported, and during the halftime, they would run, you know, um, snapshots, highlights of the game the day before games. And that was something no one ever seen. The way that the cameras were positioned, uh, you know, it was it was the beginning of what we see today. Today we have all those drones going over the stadium. Of course, you know, stuff you didn't see. But back then, that was revolutionary. And he did have Howard Cosell, who really got on Don Meredith's nerves. And he made some great, you know, viewing. I mean, you had... You know, Cozell's a lawyer like myself, and, you know, he thinks he's he's big with the math. And we have Don Meredith, who had just uh, divorced his wife, and, again, he left Dallas Cowboys. He wanted, You know what was ironic? He wanted to come back that season. Right, I was surprised at that. Yeah, you talk about that in the book, yeah. Yeah, he wanted to come back that season, but Landry felt confident with uh, Starbuck and Martin and what happened was, it was one Monday night game. It was the Vikings versus the uh, Cowboys. And, and the Vikings were blowing them out at the Cotton Bowl in Dallas. That people were chanting for Don to go down from the booth and take over. <laughs> and Don, Don's like, and Don's like, no, I'm not going down there. He was smart enough to know. <laughs> but it, it, it was, it was, and I remember uh, Monday night football, the theme song, I used to get ready because I was I was born in seventy, you know, ironically. But um, I remember being five, six years old and just wanted to hear that theme song, the Monday sure. Night Football. Then my mother would mother would put me to bed. <laughs> well, Ian, a lot of our listeners obviously are a lot younger than uh, you and I, uh, and they don't realize what it was actually like because there was a restriction until the Washington Redskins got to be a very good team, and then all of a sudden Congress decided. They'd waive that rule where you couldn't you couldn't televise any games other than the one that was on. It was your team. If you watched the Giants or you watched the Jets, uh, that's who you saw. You didn't see uh, you didn't see any games in California or anywhere else until Washington got good, and then the Senators got got uh, jealous of why they didn't get a chance to see the games. So they changed the rules. <laughs> and, you, and you know what else? You know what else bothered me, and probably bothered everyone else. All the owners were worried about television ruining gate receipts um, for the game. So if your home team played in the home, they would black out the game. Right. You couldn't play right. it. You had, to, you had to go to the stadium. And that still held true, I think, in 1970. A few years later, they would, they would overturn that rule. So you still, um, 1970 also ushered in the time when the most people went to football games. I think, if I'm not mistaken, I think I wrote it in the book that people in Florida, you know, there was being played at the Orange Bowl, and they were blocked out in the Super Bowl That's because right. of the uh, right. Yeah, they they couldn't even see it on television. Yeah, back no. then you had to uh, 
uh, you know, the blackout rule, they, uh, there was no like three days in advance rule then. It was totally blacked out until they changed that later on. But you had to drive maybe, I don't know what the, I think it was 100 miles. So a lot of people would drive 100 miles from their area to watch it on TV, the home games. Yeah, they would. And, you know, you know what's funny? You know, when you live in New York City, uh, you got the Giants and Jets over over the uh, Hudson River there in, uh, in the Meadowlands. I remember when the Jets played at Shea. Sure. And I remember when the when the Giants played in the Bronx, and of course they um, they moved in '76 to Giants Stadium, the Giants, and then the Jets moved in '82. But actually, the really, Giants played in the Yale Bowl for a few years too. Remember that? They did. And they played at the Polo Grounds as well. Yeah. They, they played at the Polo Grounds as well when the Giants were there. And then um, I think um, the Jets played there for the first few years before. Shea Stadium was put up in 1965, which again, if you've been to Shea, it's that same kind of stadium I talked about in the book. All those, you know, those fortune cookie cutter stadiums that were put up, you know, in in Cincinnati and in Pittsburgh. Um, So, you know, all these modern stadiums were starting to look like one. They had no personality. Well, the other thing was, Ian, that they had to use it for more than one sport. Uh, there weren't uh, the numbers of dollars that we see today where you have the great independent baseball teams and uh, then you have the great stadiums for the football teams as well. Uh, the cities didn't have that type of money. and you, So you built one stadium and Cincinnati Reds would play in it and the Cincinnati Bengals would play in it or Paul Brown. And uh, so that was the way it was. Now, of course, it's uh, totally different. Uh, everybody has their own venue, and the dollars have become astronomical. And you know what? You know what, Don? Uh, my kids are 14 years old. I had 20 boys. And when they watch the old highlights with, Jim, with John Cassenda, and they're like, Dad, what's with the baseball field there? I said, you know, they didn't have the kind of money you see today where I said they had to, like, you know, join stadiums and stuff like the baseball team would have to schedule their games around the right. so that you could like football. And I said it was dangerous anyway because you could get tackled right there on the dirt and, and hurt yourself. Um, you know, there was no artificial turf. I don't think there's any artificial turf now. I think that went out of style a few years ago right, when they were rebuilding the stadiums. Uh, but artificial turf became the big thing. And 1970 showcased uh, more, more of it. I think they had seven stadiums. They opted from, I think, three or four the year before. Um, you know, it was ironic because Super Bowl three, where the Colts were in against the Jets, it was on grass in the Orange Bowl. And, you know, two, two years later, they're playing on artificial turf in Miami. And that stuff would get hot. It was oh, yeah. like, it was like roast the players. Can you imagine being an offensive or defensive lineman having to go down on that in 120 degree heat? To me, it's like, I don't think Rizal was really thinking, um, Clearly, until maybe 10 years later when they started building uh, the Dome Stadium with the stuff in it. Well, the last really old time was Cleveland's Municipal Stadium, if you remember. Uh, they always had the infield there. They were the last team. That, yeah, the dirt uh, infield. When the yeah. Cleveland Browns played, they had to go, uh, you'd go maybe 70 yards on the grass, and then you'd go the last 20 or 25 yards on the infield uh, of a baseball game. It was the last, as I remember. I, th- I think Oakland uh, was the last, last one, Don. had to do that. I think Oakland might have been the uh, last one to do that in the Coliseum. 
Oh, well, you're right. Maybe, yeah. yeah, maybe Oakland did too. I forgot that. Yeah. You're right. And you know what was ironic, Don? And bring up a good point. Municipal Stadium was the first Monday night game that was played because right. no one, no one wanted to um, televise the game. And Art Modell, you know, he stepped forward and he had a vision. He said, you know something? We got the Jets. It's a New York market. Yeah, Municipal Stadium isn't the greatest looking uh, stadium. I think it was called the Mistake by the Lake or something like yeah, that. Yeah, that's right. Um, <laughs> right. And, 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 you know, he lobbied for it. And everyone's like, yeah, Art, you know, you don't have the kind of money we do. And, and yet, you know, Cleveland was a powerhouse during the 60s. A lot of people tend to forget they were an elite team. They never won um, the Super Bowl. They won the 1964 um, NFL game against the Colts with Don Shula there. And by 1970, they had grown older and they weren't as, um, you know, they weren't as uh, good as they were in the past. But Municipal Stadium still was an awful stadium. And I wrote about how Monday Night Football was like, where are we going to put the cameras? This is not a camera-friendly stadium. No. And none of the, none of the, modern people um, who watch the games, who's, who's, who's under 50, ever seen Municipal Stadium. For a baseball game, the dimensions are awful. You know, it was a deep part. You know, Almost like Yankee Stadium used to be. Yeah, Out, I think center field was like 430 or 440. Yeah. And, and I always recall Bobby Mercer out there. They didn't even, they didn't even do the... Um, all the monuments out there that the ball sometimes rolled behind some of those monuments and Mercer had to go digging for it oh, behind sure. those monuments in center field. People don't know that. You know, all these stadiums today, it's it's a lot different than what we grew up. But, um, you know, the Monday night was showcased, and I think Art Modell uh, did the Browns a service uh, because, uh, you know, sales soared, the team didn't soar, but um, he, he had at least the vision um, to have Monday Night Football telecast at Municipal Stadium. Well, I think one of the other things that changed television, too, was the game that NBC pulled out of <laughs> a little bit early before the game was over. And boy, oh boy, that created just a furor with uh, the networks as to whether or not you were going to stay and broadcast the entire game. It was 7 o'clock or 6.30 or 6.35 or whatever it is they decided to make the transition. And they dropped out of the game, and boy, oh boy, that well, you're talking about the Heidi game, the Heidi game, yeah, right. Jets in Oakland, yeah. Heidi game, Jets Oakland in 1968, and I think the Jets had a two two touchdown lead with a minute left, and uh, the network's like, "Ah, they're gonna lose anyway, the Raiders," and they came back to win. So <laughs> you know, it, yeah, you know, it, you know, it seems that you know, what what really. But really, Gatsby, today, anyone who wants to watch 60 Minutes on CBS has to wait for the football games to That's end. Right. Because after that, after that, they put. I remember, I remember my grandfather, he couldn't care less about football back in the 80s and early 90s. Like, when's the game going to end? And they would always delay 60 Minutes because uh, football's being shy. And that's because of the Heidi game, like Don mentioned. Talking with Ian Kahana. What's the name of the book? Is uh, a little bit of the broadcast team for the uh, uh, the AFL. They they uh, I thought they put together 
Uh, one thing was a wide open league. There was a lot of offense going with it. The ball was going up and down the field. Uh, but they also had a good combination of play and the broadcast team that broadcast the games on Sunday afternoon. You know, the AFL, I think, I think, I think Sid Gilman of San Diego really orchestrated a faster, quicker, more aerial game than the NFL had. I mean, you had superb plays that no one would run in the NFL. The only one I think who would run it was Fran Tarkenton. When you saw him in his 20s in the 1960s, um, you know, doing his acrobatics on the field, no one could get him. And he's playing like, like Norman Van Brocken said. He's playing like uh, schoolyard football there. <laughs> the AFL was willing to try that out. And the announcers that went along with it became better because the play style was better than the NFL. Basically, the NFL ran, and you could see it in uh, you could see it in Green Bay, and you could see it in the Giants. And um, you know, quarterbacks' numbers were not astronomical like you saw today. Um, but in the AFC, you had you had Daryl Monica, the Mad Bomber. Yep. You had. Len, Len Dawson on the Chiefs, who was uh, discarded as, as a, as a wash-up from the NFL. You had George Blanda, who was probably the star in 1940. Uh, he was 43 years old in 1970. The old man comes out, you know, and he's playing AFL-style football and kicking field goals for the Raiders' five wins in a row. The, the old man came out and showed that, hey, being middle-aged doesn't mean that you have to not enjoy what you do in this life. And he showed America. Well, you know, it's, it's a, when you look back on the footage of it, and you have a young quarterback in Ken Stabler who would soon take over the reins eventually with the bad boy Raiders of the 70s, it is amazing that Madden had trusted, um, you know, the old reliable whenever Monica got hurt. But he did it, yeah. and, and he did it. And he and you could see, you know, today we see Tom Brady at forty four. He looks like he's twenty five. But if you look at the footage of Bland, he looks about sixty. He does. Both beat up. <laughs> I mean, you know, these guys, these, these guys didn't play. Where, where if you even put a finger on Brady, you get called for pass interference. Uh, not pass, roughing the, roughing uh, the pass yeah. back then. Yeah, right back then. I mean, Merlin Olson once said, "A uh, great line, a great lineman of." Um, the fearsome foursome on L.A., he's like, man, that Tarkington, he bothered us. I wanted to just kill that SOP. And so when Tarkington <laughs> would throw the ball, they'd give him a cheap shot, and there would be no penalty. They played in a different era. And, and, and that's what makes these things so spectacular in 1970, that these guys played hurt. They were there for the love of the game for the most part. I mean, you did have... You did have, like, you know, Joe Kappa over there, who was a great quarterback uh, in and himself. He couldn't really throw the ball as well, but he had a heart. Uh, and he was the first uh, Mexican player right. really to get, to get a lot of publicity. Um, he basically um, was like Kurt Flood in baseball. He was, he was going against the establishment. He saw the wrongs of the reserve clause, you know, you could be chained to a team. And the same kind of animosity he gave the owners, 
he gave the offense, the defense uh, on uh, playing field the same way. He would just run right into people like like Jim Brown, like he was a running back, and he would play hurt. And you don't see that today. You don't see that kind of um, that kind of uh, willpower and, and enjoyment today. It's all about the money. Well, when he played against the. Uh, you know, it's still one of his most favorite. Of course, he threw a knuckle ball. He he didn't he didn't throw much of a of a pass. He got it to the receiver, uh, but he wasn't necessarily a smooth passing quarterback. And uh, but when he took on Kansas City, they were a big underdog, and and he won the game. Yeah, and you know what's interesting about Cap? The way that he learned how to um, hurl a football, he used to work in the watermelon fields and used to have to throw the watermelon to the guy who used to stack it up in the truck. So that's pretty much how he had. He never used the laces. <laughs> right? No, he never did. No. He, never, he never did. As soon as he got the ball, he gripped it and whatever he did. And you could see it's not a spiral. Nope. That thing wobbled. Kind of like Billy Kilmer. Remember yeah. Billy Kilmer threw the ball like a you know floating duck too, but it got there. <laughs> yeah, and it got. I think Kilmer. Um, there was a contract. I think I wrote about Billy Kilmer if I recall. Um, he was heavily. Um, he was heavily sought out by both AFL and and AFL, and I think Pete Rozelle, who worked for the Los Angeles Rams. Um, got to him early and, and made him sign a contract, but the AFL showed up. So I think it was the Cotton Bowl that was able to sign Kilmer to the AFL. Wayne, what was your, as you researched all this, and boy, there's so much mm-hmm. to research and put together in your book, uh, what, what was your biggest surprise in what happened or an event? Or how do you look back on it and say, this is really something? The biggest thing besides Dallas. Um, being mediocre by the midway where Tom Landry, who was, you know, stern with his players and they had lost the game. They had been shut out, I think, twice in a row. He's like, yeah, you guys just enjoy the rest of the season. The team got together, uh, matched and was able to win the division. I think the biggest surprise for me, though, was the Cincinnati Bengals. Um, Paul Brown, Paul Brown had started coaching, took over the team when it was formed in 1967 and there was a big hoopla, you know, New Orleans was coming into the league and along with it, Cincinnati was going into a league and New Orleans was actually slated for the AFL and um, Brown was supposed to go back to the NFL with the Bengals, but New Orleans refused to accept an AFL team. So they switched and um, the team was Awful the first. Oh, I mean, they, they beat the Raiders the first game. One in six they were by mid, by again, 14 game season. And then all of a sudden they turned it around like a completely different team. And I think um, Paul Brown, who's probably one of the best coaches in the, in the history of the NFL, um, got to his players. I didn't, I didn't even know that Sam Weiss was the uh, backup quarterback of uh, Cincinnati. And he traded off with Carter. Um, as the starting, but the defense gelled and the running game gelled and the passing game gelled and they were able to make the playoffs uh, by a game over uh, Cleveland uh, at the last week. And I think that was the biggest, um, you know, thing that shocked the heck out of me because even I didn't know that uh, about the Bengals that year. 
Name of the book is NFL 1970, the inaugural season of the new NFL. We won't get into it too much. We want to let the people out there get the book and read about it. But a lot of the book is also about that first Super Bowl of the uh, merger, which was Super Bowl V. uh, many called the Blunder Bowl. It was not a well-played game. I remember that game between Dallas and Baltimore. And uh, you got some great stories in the book about that as well. And uh, fortunately, now a lot of these old Super Bowl games, they've found the video, and you can watch them on YouTube, which is a lot of fun. Did you get to do that? I got to watch Super Bowl Five on um, on uh, YouTube. And I knew about Super Bowl Five for many years. In fact, for many years, it was rated the worst Super Bowl game ever. And, and <laughs> my, my book, and it does, you know, I mean, look, it was, it was in 1971. The winning team, the Baltimore Colts, made seven turnovers. The, the Cowboys made four. It was the worst officiating ever in the game. And when the book came out, there were so many people who emailed me or wrote to me or uh, instant messaged me or texted me saying, how could you say that this is the Super Bowl for the ages? And I knew I'd be, con- and, I, and I knew I'd be confronted with this because a good attorney always knows what the opposition is going to say. And I say, if you look at the other, if you look at the other four Super Bowls, it wasn't even close in any of those games. No. The only difference between those Super Bowls and the fifth Super Bowl was, like I said earlier in the show, you had a storyline which kept the fans intrigued. You had two different leagues vying for supremacy. And in the end, it was like poetic justice that when the league did merge, you would have two Super Bowl champions that were NFL, two Super Bowl champions that were AFL. And now you have a Super Bowl, which is totally confusing because the Baltimore Colts are no longer in the NFL. They took the five, the five, the three or five million dollars. Them Pittsburgh and Cleveland jumped ship because when they merged the two leagues, the NFL had sixteen teams and the AFL had ten, and so three of them decided to go over with the old AFL, and um, there was all kinds of confusion with uh, Super Bowl Five. The, the the Colts were still in shock that the Jets beat them two years earlier. Um, and, and and they were going into the game. They were doing everything different. They were so superstitious. They would take a different flight, a uh, different company. They would have a different hotel. They would practice at different times just so they can unhex the hex that, was, uh, that they thought surrounded the club. Um, they did not have an identity, the Baltimore Colts. Um, when they got into the league, um, the AFC, uh, a lot of people said, well, look, you're an NFL team. You're going in with the old AFL uh, teams over there. You're far superior. You should be winning this. Again, you had two older quarterbacks in Earl Morale and, you know, Johnny Unitas. Both of them were beat up during the season. Unitas was on his leg, last legs where they play a few years later. But the team, they claimed, had a softer schedule. And now they are representing the new AFC in the Super Bowl. And although they are had a better record than Dallas, 
they still weren't sure of their identity because of two years before when they were in the National Football League and represented themselves there in a more superior team that they had, right. which should have won the Super Bowl. Now, Dallas came oh, into the Super Bowl. They're not dead, Don. And I, I think you have to give a little bit of credit to two owners, one Mr. Rooney out in Pittsburgh, the other Mr. Wilder in New York, because they were really the ones with Pete Rodell. Uh, there was a lot of negotiation going on as to how they were going to set this thing up or what teams were going to go out of the National Football Conference mm-hmm. into the American City. And it was a very, very controversial period of time. I don't know how much you, I haven't had a chance to read the book yet, but I, mm-hmm. I don't know how much time you spent on that, that controversy of getting it finally organized. Oh, yeah, I spent a considerable deal in just how the merge is going to take place and all the negotiations that Lamar Hunt. Right. Uh, you know, Tex Schreb was in, the owner of uh, the Cowboys. He was in on all the talks and all this. And, you know, Shreve, you know people got to understand something. Here. Lamar Hunt was the son of H.L. Hunt, who was the fourth wealthiest man in the United States. And he did not want his son to be spoiled. And he gave him a trust fund, which gave him X amount of monies when he went to college. He, he didn't even have enough money to buy a suit um, <laughs> uh, for, the, for the winter. He still wore a summer suit because he did make it. But when he tried to buy an NFL team, um, he, was, he was shunted and he created his own league. And no one expected this league to do what it did. Um, they thought it would fold like the old um, All-American Football Conference League folded in 1949 and any other league that came before it, uh, which I write in another book, The Business of the NFL 1920 to 1960, which should be published next year. Um, but here we have negotiations because what happened was was that television um, came into play. Yes, the NFL got their lucrative contract, and when they did get their lucrative contract, they thought, now, forget it. There's no competition. We can buy off the AFL for players in the draft. We have enough money. But two days later, they got their own television contract, uh, the AFL. And so when you went to get college kids, the prices were going up and up and up and up and up and up, and no one wanted to keep spending money on this war uh, of, of attrition where the owners aren't profiting. The ones who are profiting are the new players. Joe Namath got an unpre- unprecedented $400,000 contract right. and a fur coat. And you know, a new car. It? I think he got yeah, a Lincoln Continental, and too. And a new yep. car. Right. <laughs> so, yeah, to go in. And so, and so what, 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 happens, what, what happens when you knock it out? Okay, what happens when you knock out the competition? Salaries are going to go down because there's no one else to overbid for them. And you had a reserve clause which said, hey, you know, you're going to be owned by the team and you'll always be owned by the team and you can't really negotiate with anyone else. So I'm going to pay you what, you know, we're going to pay you. And I think the negotiations on the owner's level, they had to stop the funding because I do believe they would have bled themselves dry if they didn't merge. Yeah. No, I just say I would agree with that 100%. I think that, uh, you know, it, it, it defeated their own purpose. So when you start to uh, put yourself in a position where you have to outbid everybody for every player, especially initially when they came out of college, uh, you were putting yourself in an awful hole. 
And you know, Don, right now I'm nearing 700 pages of my new book, which is the MBA, the business of the MBA and the union. Oh. And, oh yeah, the congressional hearings, those, those players who uh, wanted the league to merge testified at the hearing saying, as soon as the owners came together, there was no more monopolies. They punished the players like they did prior. They had no rights. And if the NBA is going to merge, you got to get rid of the option clause, which, again, your contract ends after a year. You don't sign with the team. you got to stay with the team for a year, even if you don't play. And only then can you go out and market yourself. And, of course, the reserve clause, which says that every year the owners get um, you know, a unilateral, we either want you or we don't want you, but you're always bound to the team. And the NFL started this um, in the mid-60s. It was good for the owners. It was good for the fans, I believe, but the players got the share. We'll definitely want to have you on when, when that's out here, and please, uh, please let us know. But in the meantime, we want people to get this book, NFL 1970, the inaugural season of the new NFL. Ian Kahanowitz is the author. And Ian, uh, I know you probably have a website. Uh, is it available everywhere, or do you have to go to your website for the book? No, you can go it's anywhere. It's in Barnes & Noble, I see. It's in Amazon. You go to the website, which is on Sunbury Press. Um, but it's usually everywhere, everywhere I look. People tell me I see it all over the place. So uh, I guess it's a good thing. I guess it's, it's good to be wanted, I guess. That's it. Well, <laughs> we, I know we kept you longer than we said, but it's such a fascinating. We could talk for hours on uh, vintage sports. Don and I are kind of historical in that sense. So, uh, But we look forward to talking to you when the basketball com- book comes out. So please let us know. I shall. I got, well, you know what? I got one book that's written two volumes about collusion. Not a lot of people know about this in baseball how the owners um, tried to destroy free agency in 1985, 86, and 87. Right. And that's a two-volume set. It culminates in 1994 with the strike, the end of the strike. So before my basketball book comes in, i got about four more books coming out. Well, I hope in that book you have a chance to uh, follow up on Todd Williams and the Philadelphia 76ers and Julius Serving winding up in Philadelphia. It's one of the greatest oh. money sports stories of all time. Oh, yeah. They bought Moses Malone for a crazy amount. That he, he, I think he paid more for Malone than he did the 76s. <laughs> and, and how about <laughs> A-Rod buys, what, 20% of that. Now their teams are over worth $2 billion. When Eddie Gottlieb stole the Warriors out to San Francisco, million dollars. He thought that was the greatest deal ever made in the history of sport. <laughs> and now, and now you pay it for two billion dollars for a franchise. Yeah, it's unbelievable what happens today. David Stern was able to monetize it. Well, Ian, real pleasure talking to you. Thanks for being with us, and uh, we will talk to you again down the road. Hey, thank, thank you for having me on the show. God bless you. Get both. And uh, look, I listen to your show weekly anyway. You know, whenever you have the new episodes, because I. Uh, I like you on Facebook and stuff. So, oh, great. You know, you're, you're the one. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm the one. That you're the one that listens. We know, appreciate right? it. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, well, Ian. You have, good, you have a good night. Bye now. All right, you take care, gentlemen. Have a good night. Take care.